Welcome to Unfiltered. Here's tonight's headline. It's Hoosier versus Hoosier. All eyes are on South Bend, Indiana. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who has had quite the week following an impressive first quarter fundraising haul of $7 million, he surged in the polls. The latest figures from Iowa and New Hampshire, two early primary states, have him in third place behind Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. That's right. A guy whose name most people couldn't pronounce until a couple weeks ago is third in the polls. He's getting a ton of media attention, including an appearance on Ellen this week, and he hasn't even officially announced his 2020 candidacy yet. That's expected to happen tomorrow in South Bend. But the biggest news this week came from his war of words with fellow Hoosier, former Indiana governor turned Vice President Mike Pence over God and marriage. It all started at the LGBTQ Victory Fund National Champagne Brunch last weekend when Buttigieg, who is gay, zeroed in on Pence's past anti-LGBTQ policies. Speaking only for myself, I can tell you that if me being gay was a choice, it was a choice that was made far, far above my pay grade. And that's the thing I wish the Mike Pence's of the world would understand. That if you've got a problem with who I am, your problem is not with me. Your quarrel, sir, is with my creator. Late this week in an exclusive interview with CNN's Dana Bash, the VP responded this way. I think Pete's quarrels with First Amendment. Oh, so. All of us in this country have the the right to our religious beliefs. I'm, I'm a Bible-believing Christian. He'd do well to reflect on the importance of respecting the freedom of religion of every American. And that was followed by Buttigieg's response on Ellen yesterday. I'm not critical of his faith. Uh, I'm critical of bad policies. Uh, I don't have a problem with religion. I'm religious, too. Uh, I have a problem with religion being used as a justification to harm people and especially in the LGBTQ community. I'm not interested in feuding with the vice president, but if he wanted to clear this up, he could come out today and say he's changed his mind, that it shouldn't be legal to discriminate against anybody in this country for who they are. And for his part, Pence defends policies like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as preventing discrimination against people of faith. Whomever you side with, it's an interesting and refreshingly civil discussion between two men of faith who I think deeply believe what they're saying. Buttigieg, on the one hand, has lived and experienced the very discrimination he attributes to Pence's policies. Pence, on the other, is like millions of other Christians and Muslims and Jews in this country who believe marriage should be between a man and a woman. Neither is taking a huge risk here either. Buttigieg's views are in line with his bases, and Pence will find plenty of support for his views on the religious right. And it's a smart strategic decision by Buttigieg. As he introduces himself for the first time to millions of Americans, he's engaging millennial voters for whom LGBTQ rights are uncontroversial and long overdue. And it sets him apart in a very crowded Democratic primary field, to great effect, as evidenced by those surging poll numbers. But some other polls are important for Buttigieg, Buttigieg, too. Polls on gay marriage. A majority of Americans, 67% by Gallup's last polling in 2018, believe marriage between same-sex couples should be legal. 
Even among religious Americans, gay marriage is polling better and better. A PRRI, Public Religion Research Institute survey, of more than 40,000 Americans found two-thirds of Catholics, Orthodox Christians, and white mainline Protestants are now in favor. Support is growing among Mormons and evangelicals. Majority support now includes African Americans, up to 52%. Hispanic Americans are at 61%. In fact, Alabama is now the only state in the country where a majority of residents say they oppose same-sex marriage. Here's the deal. America is, in short, moving on from its homophobic past. It's still out there, of course, but LGBTQ equality is the future. As someone who has long supported gay rights even before many Democrats did, my message to Republicans has been unequivocal. Resist this progress at your own peril. But there's another part of this story that's getting less attention, and I think it's just as important, if not more so. Buttigieg's LGBTQ message is a good one. It's personal for him. But the other Democrats running for president also share his views. What they can't all do is speak personally and convincingly about God. They'll all try, of course, but Buttigieg is a devout, unapologetic Christian. He speaks his conviction fluently and with alacrity. That's frankly something we haven't seen in a long time from a Democratic candidate. That's important. Whatever you believe, and I'm an atheist, 73% of the country is Christian. Buttigieg is speaking for and to moderates who are maybe turned off by Trump's politics of revenge, but feel like progressives don't get them either. His message of Christian compassion may very well resonate with those voters. Buttigieg is reminding middle America what it sounds like when a Democrat talks positively about God. Joining me to discuss our former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, Basil Smigel, and former RNC comms director, Doug High. So, Basil, yes. how good has this fight with Pence been for Pete Buttigieg? First of all, Mayor Pete has been phenomenal on the campaign trail. Yeah. And I think this fight with Pence is certainly good for his fundraising because he can show uh, what differentiates him from the other Democrats is that he's actually having a current fight with this administration in the, yeah. in the, in the, pres in the person of Mike Pence. But I think what's also interesting, and you, you talked a bit about this, he's not just calling out Donald Trump. He's actually calling out, I think, Republican hypocrisy. Not all Republicans, mm. but certainly some Republican mm. hypocrisy particularly among the evangelicals who sidled next to Donald Trump. Right. And for Mike Pence, who will talk about maybe attacks on his religion, but what, what the fact that he uses religion to justify his policy mm -hmm. positions, that's what's really dangerous. Mm. And I think for Mayor Pete to call that out is certainly within, is within his right and purview to do so. Yeah. And that, I think, to be able to extend that through the campaign is only going to be uh, very good for him in terms of bolstering his numbers. Well, Doug, I mean, this high-minded, very polite conversation, you know, between two guys who are like, all due respect, no, all due respect, um, is, is, is one thing. But can Mayor Pete, Pete uh, Buttigieg, can he handle Trump the same way? Or is he going to sort of get sucked into Trump's vacuum of name-calling and all of that? Yeah, you know, we hear, we hear the word resist from Democrats so much. And what it often means is the more opposed to Trump, the more they act like him. And we see that so much yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with the AOCs of the world. Mm -hmm. Pete is a very different message and a very different messenger. Yeah, and great it's, point. You know, we talk about Iowa nice. There's also Indiana nice, which is why you see oh, yeah. Pence and, and, and Buttigieg really trying to out-nice each other. But yeah. that's also because they have a personal relationship. We forget mm -hmm. Mike Pence was the governor yep. of that state, worked 
with Mayor Pete when he was mayor. Yeah. It's also, again, as we've seen so much divisive, divisiveness and nastiness in our politics, yeah. whether from the president or from Democrats, that they can have this kind of civil conversation yeah. is, to some extent uplifting. It, it really is. Um, I, and look, I, I think Buttigieg has a shot at this. It's a long shot, yeah. but I think he's got a shot. Um, but could he also be setting himself up for Veep? I mean, if a, if a more progressive candidate wins the nomination, he might look pretty great on the ticket as sort of a balance uh, from middle America and right. of a different... Sure, build. as you talked about, from the Midwest, he um, presents a good balance to perhaps whoever's at the top of the ticket that may have to be Trump-like yeah, to be able right. to go at Donald Trump. But the truth is, with what do we know, 18 candidates in this race? Uh, a lot of them are vying for number two at this point. Yeah. Especially because you have... At you best. Know, this, essentially, <laughs> this, right, essentially, you have the same three in Biden and Bernie and maybe Pete and, yeah. and maybe Beto in some cases, um, sort of moving, you know, sort of mm. staying at the top three. So, uh, I, yes, I think he'd be a great number two. Yeah. And I think he actually may be in many ways representative of the future of the Democratic Party. Number two well, wouldn't the that bullet. be interesting? Yeah. Because, as I mentioned, Doug, mm -hmm. I don't think you hear a lot of Democrats talking about God the way Pete Buttigieg can. And we heard mm -hmm. a little of it this week. But if you go back, you can find real sort of muscular defense of Christianity. Yep. He speaks the language fluently. Um, I think that's really interesting and maybe an indication that the GOP's stronghold mm -hmm. on religion might be over, especially with, you know, Trump in the White House. No, and there's been a real increase in, in democratic evangelicalism, uh, especially among African-American, African-American women, yeah. um, for instance, African-American mothers, mm -hmm. um, especially. So this is an area where, where he and other Democrats, if they're willing to step forward, um, can make yeah. some inroads um, into Democrats. And the other thing I, I find, and I'll tell you, anybody who spent any time around Pete Buttigieg knew that, that he was capable That's of right. this. He, I've right. been around him twice. Uh, he was the former president of the Harvard IOP um, right. Institute of Politics up there and got to see him in action and knew three, four years ago, this guy's a star. star. Yeah. He yeah. just didn't know what it was going to be. Yeah. And to me, to some extent, he's Beto O'Rourke, but with substance. No, and that's, that's what difference. I say. I say yeah, all the Beto fans right. are spelling Buttigieg wrong. I mean, <laughs> I, think, that's right. I think he I mean, really, he's the better version. And I think what's interesting, um, according to reporting on CNN's own website, not the, the sort of not religious is now just as popular as people who identify themselves as Catholics. And that's actually really important if you're Mike Pence and Republicans because what you have the ability to do, and I think it's unfortunate, but what they could end up doing then is sort of painting millennials or painting Democrats as sort of being not particularly religious, secular, don't have, God, yeah. secular, don't have God as center of their lives. And I think that's what Mike Pence is setting up to do, hmm. but I don't think that that's going to work in the long run. Uh, guys, sit tight. You're not going anywhere just yet. There's too many 2020 candidates to leave it at just the one. Next up, champion of the working class and new member of the 1%, Bernie Sanders makes his pitch to voters in the Rust Belt this weekend. And a little later, the president leans in to a legally questionable plan to bus migrants to sanctuary cities. Don't go anywhere. I didn't know that it was a crime to write a good book. My view has always been that we need a progressive tax system which demands that the wealthiest people in this country finally start paying their fair share of taxes. If I make a lot of money, you make a lot of money, that is what I believe. So again, I don't apologize for writing a book that was number three on the New York Times bestseller, translated into five or six languages, uh, and that's that. 
Alrighty then. Current Democratic 2020 frontrunner Bernie Sanders during a stop today on his tour of Rust Belt states responded to this week's revelation that he's a member of the 1%, a group he has spent his political career attacking. Bernie's favorite boogeymen, banks, corporations, millionaires and billionaires now include him. Maybe that accounted for the earlier foot dragging on releasing his tax returns, which he now appears ready to do, pledging to release 10 years worth by Monday, tax day. But will Bernie's authenticity on economic inequality take a hit if it turns out he's been benefiting from the very rigged system he's long railed against? Back with me are Basil Smichael and Doug High. Um, guys, let me start by saying... I don't care one lick that Bernie's a millionaire. Mazel. Um, good for him. And I don't think it's hypocritical for him to have personally benefited from a capitalist system while openly opining for a more socialist one. I do wonder, though, if his message is going to ring a little more hollow now. I'm not so sure that it'll ring a little hollow. Look, I think his core supporters are going to say, good for Bernie. It's a book. Politicians write books. Good for him. Yeah. Um, I will say this. So, so two things. One, in terms of the release of the taxes and on the campaign trail, he's still got to be able to advocate for all the things he advocated for previously. That's where it, that's where that consistency becomes yeah. very important. Yeah. I will say this, though, just uh -huh. a little caveat, because I remember 2016 and I remember him and some of his supporters railing against Hillary Clinton and others for making these speeches. The truth is that whether it's Hillary Clinton getting paid to talk in front of very influential people or Bernie Sanders writing a book, yeah. it's getting paid by your, for your intellectual capital. And you know what? I don't have a problem with no. that. And I think making Democrats, some, sometimes sounding like Democrats should hate rich people yeah. is wrong because there are people that want to be rich too. We just don't want the yeah. system to be rich. Well, so look, focus on that. We know he's a millionaire. I, I come to expect all politicians are millionaires these days. Oh. I mean, that's just how it, it, it seems. And, and my main problem with Bernie's branding has always been that he's not an outsider. He's a like, career politician. Yeah, right. He's been in politics for 30 years. Um, there's nothing outside about him. But what could we learn from these tax returns that might really shake up his base. I, I agree. If it's just that he made money from the book, probably not. But are there things in there that could be problematic for him? Well, obviously, we know that he owns um, several houses, and, and that potentially could be an issue. But ultimately, I don't think any of this is going to be yeah. an issue for Bernie. What about stocks? Let's say stocks in some sure, very no, 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 no. 1% yeah. companies. Right. Sure. I mean, if, if he's if he is invested in Montgomery Burns nuclear um, company, <laughs> right, right, right. then yes, that's a problem. Okay. But, but ultimately, <laughs> as we learned from Donald Trump, authenticity is in the eye of the beholder and is in the eye of the voter. And so if Donald Trump can be the great white hope, literally, for evangelicals, yeah, literally. Then, yeah. then clearly <laughs> Bernie Sanders supporters are not going to get terribly worked up um, unless he's invested in, you know, Globotron and plastic right. straw manufacturing. Right. All those That's liberal right. boogeymen. Right. Otherwise, That's he's right. fine. Does he need to come out and say, uh, yes, I've benefited from the system and I should pay more taxes? Yeah, like, he, like a Warren Buffett kind of thing. Yes, he should. He and should. he better. Uh, because it really go, it does go back to his uh, authenticity. Voters tend to forgive a liar, but not a hypocrite. Yeah. And if he doesn't do these things, uh -huh. he will seem extraordinarily hypocritical. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think we're going to be looking for that on the campaign. So his um, Medicare for All legislation is an expanded version of ones that he has previously uh, brought up. He virtually eliminates all private health insurance. Um, as noted in Politico this week, he has fewer allies than he did two years ago. Senator Al Franken isn't in Congress in it any anymore, and Gene Shaheen dropped off the bill. Um, this year, and no new senators have signed 
on since. Does that put him in a tough spot? Not really, in part because I actually think the American people are where he is. And that's what they matters. Are, and that's what matters today. Um, they want to see some movement on this. Hmm. I thank others that have come before him, the aforementioned Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, by actually raising this issue about trying to reform health care. Hmm. So I do think that there is a progression that the American people are buying into. He needs to tell us how he's going to pay for it, though, right? Hmm. Well, that's always the, the dirty <laughs> little secret for Democrats. Yes. But I think here's one of the vulnerabilities for them. They did hmm. massively well. It's why they took back the House in 2018 was health care, health care, health care. Yeah. But they've moved so far to the left in just six months that it gives Donald Trump and Senate and House Republicans a real opportunity to say, if you like your plan, you might be able to keep it. But Democrats are already saying you won't even be allowed to have any private health care insurance. And that's going to scare voters. You think so? It, it might if it's not explained properly, because I think you're right. Remember when Barack Obama kept saying, you can keep, you can keep, and all of a sudden you couldn't. Quite. Couldn't. And that it was, was the lie was, of the year. And that, was a, and that was a problem, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, I, some people wanted to say he lied. I don't think he lied. Uh -huh. But, you know, voters don't want any surprises on something like health care. It's too important to move. Well, so there's going to be a big surprise that the... the, the, the um the, the, what am I trying to say? The price. The price, price tag, tag yeah. is going to be a big surprise. I think there's going to be a lot of sticker shock, sticker shock if we actually get a price tag for some of these huge, huge, sweeping, mm -hmm. big new government um, you know, projects like Medicare for all or free college for all. But the question is, does that enable Americans to get closer to the American dream? Those two things, health care and education, yeah. are the two items that put more Americans in debt and keep them from being able to do things like get a house. There are yeah. a lot of parents out there that are like, get my kid out the house. Can't do that. <laughs> Can't do that because of student loans. All right, Doug Basil, thanks so much for Thank spending you. time with me tonight. Good. The president finds himself back in an adversarial groove, reigniting a political fight over an actual issue that needs solving, immigration. I'll talk about that in a bit. But first, Congress wants to see Trump's taxes. Are they barking up the wrong tree? Stay right there. Let's talk about the Supreme Court. The justices on Monday are set to hear a trademark case by the maker of a fashion brand called Friends You Can't Trust. Do the math. You'll see where this is going. Eric Brunetti, whose clothing line goes by its off-color acronym, sued the government after his trademark application ran afoul of the immoral and scandalous provision and was rejected. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal circuit ruled in his favor saying the first amendment protects private expression even when that expression is offensive to lots of people citing a previous supreme court decision which, which struck down an adjacent part of the law against registering disparaging trademarks so it seems the oversized baggy skate pant designer has a pretty good shot at victory with an appeals court the aclu and precedent on his side but not to worry, should he prevail, you can only buy his products online. I'll be back in two minutes. In the Red File tonight, more oversight, more investigations. The House Oversight Committee plans to subpoena President Trump's financial statements from his accounting firm on Monday. And today, House Ways and Means Chairman Richard Neal issued a 10-day ultimatum to the IRS to hand over the president's tax returns. Writing in his two-page letter, quote, I am aware the concerns have been raised regarding my request and the authority of the committee. Those concerns lack merit. I expect a reply from the IRS by 5 p.m. on April 23rd, 2019. Please know that if you fail to comply, your failure will be interpreted as a denial of my request. 
The House's oversight coincides with Attorney General William Barr's looming release of a redacted version of the Mueller report, expected, according to the AG himself, early this coming week. Joining me now is Massachusetts Democrat Congressman Stephen Lynch, a member of the House Oversight Committee. Uh, thanks for joining me. First, on the plans to subpoena Trump's accounting firm for his financial statements. Tell me what is the basis for that subpoena? Okay, so when Michael Cohen testified a few weeks ago, he not only gave oral testimony, he also bring, uh, brought three sets of uh, uh, filings that, uh, that financial reports that uh, that belonged to Donald Trump and that had been used previously and prepared by Mazar USA. So those documents, we believe, are inconsistent with some other filings that uh, the Trump mm. uh, campaign made or, or the president has made. And so we'd like to find out which, which are correct. And uh, so we've asked for more documents that mm. are related to those three uh, financial reports that we received from Mr. Cohen. Okay, and so turning then to the tax return ultimatum, the first request was ignored. You've admitted in your committee you've gotten exactly zero documents in response from the White House. Trump's right. chief of staff, Milk Mulvaney, has said openly Democrats will never see the tax returns. So what's the plan from your committee if the administration just keeps stonewalling up through the election? Okay, so under the Revenue Act of 1924, we actually, uh, well, Mr. Neal's committee, is named in the statute and he has uh, the right to have the have the IRS deliver those returns uh, to to his committee yeah. and then and then after that point uh, if if the Ways and Means Committee determines that there's a, a legitimate basis to share those with the House and Senate that it, that it can do so uh, but the end of the day this is going to end up in court and mm. and uh, so we've made uh, Mr. Neal's committee has made a request uh, to the IRS, to uh, actually to Secretary Mnuchin, to deliver those tax returns, and uh, this will go before a judge. We think mm -hmm. uh, after, as Mr. Neal has noted, uh, he interprets uh, the White House response as a refusal, which gives right. him a, a reason to go into court. Got it. Um, okay, so six House committees have opened Trump probes. Your committee is looking at hush money, Trump businesses, security clearances. Look, I think oversight is important, um, super important. But do you worry that this looks to voters like your priorities are off, that you were elected to legislate and not just investigate? Well, we can't exempt somebody from the law, right? Uh, so we have a responsibility to do our jobs, and, and that's what we're doing. I think that uh, uh, with the, the tax returns, it may, it may open up a whole uh, uh, menu of, of options for oversight uh, where to focus. But uh, from my, my committee standpoint, my subcommittee on national security, we think that the uh, security clearance issue for Mr. Kushner and others is, is very, very, very important. Uh, mm -hmm. We think the president has repeatedly overridden uh, the basic process and uh, uh, procedure for granting uh, national security clearances. We think he's done so to the detriment of uh, our nation's security. So we have to we have to require him to abide by the law. Yeah, I think that's important, too. Um, let me just lastly get you on on Bill Barr. Were, were you satisfied with A.G. Bill Barr's testimony this week? Or do you believe, like some of your colleagues, that he is protecting the president? Well, uh, 
I can only answer that when I see how much of this report or how much of the yeah. 400 pages has been redacted. If it's all blacked out, then obviously, uh, you know, we have to we'll try have something answer. different. But <laughs> yeah. Right, right, we will. Uh, Congressman, I appreciate your time tonight and always nice to see my hometown in that backdrop. I appreciate uh, it. Thank you. All right. Lawyers told him the plan was not legal, but apparently the political points are worth it. Immigration seems to be a problem few want to actually solve. I'll have that next. First, the president said the country was full. Now he says, no, wait, it turns out we do have room. He'll just send undocumented immigrants to sanctuary cities. The White House downplayed news of the proposed plan, saying it was informal and quickly rejected. But the president helpfully contradicted that statement just a few hours later. We are uh, looking at the possibility, strongly looking at it, to be honest with you. California certainly is always saying, oh, we want more people. And they want more people in their sanctuary cities. Well, we'll give them more people. We can give them a lot. We can give them an unlimited supply. And let's see if they're so happy. Uh, there are numerous problems with this plan. First and foremost, it's illegal. Also, it undercuts Trump's own promise to deport undocumented immigrants. It would be prohibitively expensive. It wouldn't solve any immigration problems. And if it ever actually came to pass, it would likely infuriate his own base. But this isn't the only dumb idea the president has toyed with lately. He's also reportedly suggested denying entry for asylum seekers. Again, illegal. Even allegedly promising the Border Patrol chief he'd pardon him if he got in trouble for carrying out his wishes. Give him points for creativity, but not so much for, you know, governing. Senior administration official told CNN, quote, the president refuses to understand that the Department of Homeland Security is constrained by the laws. Laws? What laws? All right, for more on this controversy, I'm joined by CNN's Boris Sanchez from the White House. Boris, uh, what's the latest out of Washington? Same thing, different day, Essie. <laughs> what I've heard from White House officials on this is that uh, this idea that the president consistently brings up uh, strategies or, or perhaps approaches to immigration that are illegal, uh, not within the purview of the president, is part of a theme. It's an approach that the White House has toward policy. Some would say it's partly because President Trump doesn't really have experience in politics because he doesn't know the, the legalities of immigration. Others, as you just uh, showed there from a senior administration official, uh, suggest that the president simply doesn't care. And I've heard this comes up time and time again when it comes to uh, trade, tariffs, foreign policy. Uh, the president has an unorthodox approach. And frankly, uh, many times that inclination has had to be reined in. And this issue illustrates it case in point. Uh, the White House initially brought this up to DHS lawyers back in November around the time of the midterm elections. It didn't go anywhere then. It came up again in February. And then yesterday, we initially had the White House put out a statement saying this was just a suggestion. This wasn't anything that they intended to pursue. Shortly before President Trump came out and said, we are strongly considering this as an option. So he is obviously the lead here when it comes to immigration policy, followed closely by Stephen Miller as policy advisor. Both of them very hawkish, hawkish on this issue, one that the president cares about very much 
much so. And in his eyes, from what I've heard from sources, it's more important to appear aggressive on this issue mm. than to be right legally. That's why you see him offering to pardon the head of Customs and Border Protection if he does follow his orders and break the law by stopping asylum seekers mm. at the border. He really wants to appear aggressive, unorthodox, anti-establishment going into 2020 on an issue that many uh, here in Washington see as see having become stale, I see. Mm. Boris, thanks. Appreciate it. All right, now let's bring in former DNC comms director Maria Cardona and CNN political commentator Ben Ferguson. Uh, ben, I'll be honest, I think to a lot of people, especially <laughs> in Trump's base, the idea of dumping illegal immigrants in sanctuary cities sounds perf perfectly reasonable. It's, in fact, something my dad would, yeah. would suggest. But you're smart. You know it's illogical. It's impractical. It's illegal. So what's the point of the politics of revenge? What does that accomplish? Well, I... <clears throat> I'll be honest with you, people I talked to at the White House, they did not look at this as an issue of revenge. They look at this as an issue of, okay, Democrats are refusing to admit there's a problem at the border. They say it's a manufactured crisis. You've got 100,000 last month that were detained coming across the border, 4,000 a day. Former Obama uh, head of, you know, secretary said, uh, look, over 1,000 a day is a crisis. 4,000 a day, Johnson. this is clearly yeah. a crisis. Jay yeah. Johnson. And they say, look, you know, Democrats say, no, 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 there is no crisis. There is no crisis. And I think the point the president was making is, okay, if you say it's not a crisis, and you think that sanctuary cities work, we will be happy to send 100,000 people to all the sanctuary cities every month, and you guys at some point will figure out in reality, this is a massive crisis and be forced to can't. actually change we the can't. laws. I mean, sometimes and they won't, you, and they're not doing but, that. But, but, that's why the president on, put on. it out there. Uh, you have a you have a kid. I have a kid. Sometimes I put my kid through exercises to teach him a lesson, right? <laughs> the president yeah. of the United States can't do that with hundreds of thousands of people. If, de if in Democrats our are acting like just... kids, though. No, I think I see. Yeah. If you have 100,000 coming uh, across the border hey, illegally, ben, they're acting it's like my kids. Turn. My turn. Go ahead, Maria. Hi, Maria. Uh, so, so, hi, Ben. So, first of all, Democrats have always said this is a humanitarian crisis. We have said that it is a manufactured crisis when the president wants to declare a national emergency for something that isn't a national security crisis. The problem with this president is that he does not see immigration as a problem that needs solving, only a solution to his sure political does. problems. And so, when you have the president, I mean, let's just think about this, SC. The president, two things. The president is treating these migrants as if they were the bubonic plague or as if they were a biochem weapon to be released into sanctuary cities. And, you know, to, to do what? What does he hope that they'll do? If he thinks that they are MS-13 gang members or criminals, does he hope that they're going to kill American citizens and therefore get back at Democrats? That's, that's number absurd. One. Number that's two. Absurd. Number two. Let's Think about what the president just did this last week. He offered a pardon to the new head of Homeland Security for him to break the law. I mean, well, let me that take is it not normal. Let, that is not appropriate. Let me just take it from there. They, they put out a statement saying they did not happen. That's impeachable. Guys, that's guys, one at a time. One at a time. I'm in charge here. Tell Ben. <laughs> Tell Ben that. Didn't let, me, let, me, <laughs> let me just take that last point that Maria made. Um, ben, I'm old enough to remember when you and I would rail against President Obama for something we called executive overreach. And this president yeah. makes that look downright cuddly. Doesn't yeah. it bother you that he repeatedly looks for ways to break the law or go around Congress and expand the authority of the executive? 
Look, I, I think this president sits in a room and he sees a big problem with 100,000 people coming across the border, and he sees the Democrats' refusal to work with him or to actually change the laws, and they refuse to admit there's a crisis. So he looks at every other option on the table that he can get his hands but on, this option and that doesn't mean he's going to go with <laughs> it. But option, that's just, he doesn't have this point. as an option. Well, but he looks at it and says, exactly. is this an option or is that an option or is this an option? Having a grand debate about this when you literally can't get anything done through Congress because Democrats refuse to do anything or even admit there's a crisis at the border. What else yeah. do you want the president to do? He's got to think outside well, the box. He's forced to. Well, and Maria, I mean, to Ben's, yeah. to Ben's point, I think it's very um, incontroversial to say that both parties uh, have enjoyed a broken immigration system, have politically profited on it, both in fundraising and in, in, in elections. And Democrats have not offered a lot of solutions to solve some of these problems. I mean, I can read from the Washington Post just two days ago. House Democrats offer few remedies for border crisis as they plot agenda. Bingo. In the article, it says the absence of a unified Democratic alternative to Trump's hardline vision reflects both the limits of legislative power and divisions right. on how the party should approach immigration policy in the face of Trump's open border attacks. Isn't it incumbent on Democrats to stop saying there is no crisis and actually come forward with some policy solutions? Well, again, they're not saying there's no crisis. They're saying it's a humanitarian crisis. And actually, Representatives Zoe Lagren and Jerry Nadler are working on a bill that would actually do something to solve the humanitarian crisis that exists right now at the border. Let's also remember, SC, that the 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 bill that was passed that that kept the the government or that stopped the government shutdown, the money for the wall, as well as other mm -hmm. things, contained money for additional immigration judges, for additional asylum caseworkers. This president, what did he also say these last two weeks? He doesn't want any more immigration judges. He doesn't. He doesn't even want people allowed in to to ask for asylum. So again, that's, that's not. That's not, president, accurate, that's not as accurate. This, statement. It, it is absolutely accurate, Ben. No, this president is the one. This president is the one who also go. said no when Democrats came go. to him with an immigration bill. We, uh, it's a spirited debate. I appreciate it. And I think a good illustration of how hard this problem <laughs> is. And it'd be great to have some adults uh, on both sides of the Agreed. aisle trying to Let's solve it. Let's get one in the White House. <laughs> Maria, Ben, thanks you both. We'll be right back. Thanks, Essie. If you were like me, you were astonished this week to see the first ever photographs of a black hole in space. Well, it has a name now, Powahi and a Hawaiian phrase referring to an embellished dark source of unending creation. Doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but to more terrestrial matters, Congress doesn't get the president's pitch for a space force. On Capitol Hill this week, Acting Defense Secretary Patrick Shanahan drew skepticism as he appeared in front of the Senate Armed Services Committee to pitch Trump's much-touted sixth branch of the U.S. military. While senators agreed U.S. military presence in space is essential, many questioned whether a completely separate branch would just mean more money, more bureaucracy. Few things get me as excited as space talk. Someone who shares my passion is CNN presidential historian Douglas Brinkley. He's author of the new book, American Moonshot, JFK and the Great Space Race. Um, congratulations, debuting at number 10 on the New York Times Thank bestseller you. list. Um, so, Doug, there's clearly still a great interest in, in space exploration, um, thankfully. But how is the way that Trump taps into that 
excitement different than maybe past presidents? Well, I teach at Rice University in Houston, and that's where on September 12th, 1962, John F. Kennedy said we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Yeah. And that, that speech of Kennedy still loved by people that are, you know, rocket engineers, yeah. uh, people working with NASA or the private sector's rocket industry. Uh, what you hear going on with Donald Trump and the Space Forces, I think he liked the idea of Reagan's Star Wars for their strategic defense initiative, mm. just like the sound of Space Force. But it's gonna be pretty much a non-starter because Army, Navy, Marines, and Air Force don't wanna lose appropriations. They don't wanna right. start sharing the, um, you know, the space budget um, rocketry with a yet a brand new branch of the armed forces. Mm. Well, JFK, as you mentioned, he tied space exploration to this overt, almost hyper-patriotism. Um, I wonder how that would go over today. What do you think? You know, it might. Uh, I just criticized Space Force of Donald Trump, but Vice President Pence's idea of can we go back to the moon in four or five years, yeah. speech he gave about two weeks ago in Huntsville, that's plausible, that might work. The mm. spur for that will be China, because China's going to the dark side of the moon, and you might be able to get a competition to go back, mm. and after all, Kennedy had said, we'll put the first man on the moon. We've yet to have a, a woman on the moon. And that mm. would be a big thing if the United States um, did that, because many um, women are now astronauts. When back in the Kennedy era, there yeah. were 13 women trained, but they weren't allowed to go into space. So President Obama, you mentioned, um, he was criticized even by astronauts like Neil Armstrong and Jim Lovell for, for underfunding NASA, canceling the Constellation program and its Ares 1 and 5 rockets, the Orion. Is our investment in space returning, do you think, when compared to past presidents? Well, that's a great question, Essie. Um, in the mid-60s, the Kennedy effect, NASA was getting about 4.4% of our annual budget. Today, you're dealing with NASA getting a third of 1%. So mm -hmm. if the Trump administration is serious about going into space in new ways, then it's going to cost money. There used to be a saying around NASA in the early 60s, no bucks no Buck Rogers. Uh, huh? The Apollo program cost $25 yeah. billion. That's $185 billion mm. in today's money. You know, the summer is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, and there are all kinds of fun yeah. events around the country. There's an Apollo, Apollo Palooza. There's a summer moon festival <laughs> in Neil Armstrong's hometown. Um, boomers had, had Apollo and the moon landing. My generation, unfortunately, had the Challenger. Millennials, maybe the Mars rover. What will the next generation have, quickly? Um, Mars. I think, you know, Buzz Aldrin's alive and well, and he's been saying the new moonshot is a Mars shot. If we mm. went back to the moon, it would be as a stepping stone to eventually getting to Mars, and it needs to be a human spaceflight, not robotic. Uh, well, that would just be so exciting. Um, thanks, Doug. The new book is called American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy, and the Great Space Race. Go buy it today, Douglas Brinkley. Thanks, as always, for putting all of that in historical perspective. Uh, that's it for me. Next up, Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke joins David Axelrod for an amazing extended interview on The Axe Files. Don't go anywhere. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 